Welcome to the war. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Grant. If you have a comment, send it to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Speaking of great detectives, uh, listeners to my Great Detectives podcast will know that I'm a fan of the Nero Wolf stories, and so are many of my uh, listeners. Rex Stout is best known as the creator of Nero Wolf. Stout began the Wolf series in 1934 and really experienced a boon to his publishing uh, career. From August of 1935, when the League of Frightened Man, the first sequel to the Nero Wolf books, were released, to August of 41, during those six years, Stout was incredibly active. He wrote the uh, seven Nero Wolf novels, as well as the first two Nero Wolf novellas, in addition to nine other novels. However, during the next four years, from August of 1941 to August of 1945, he released but three novellas. Why the change in output? It was because Stout refocused his life a battle against Hitler and for democracy. In fact, the very first uh, Nero Wolf novella, published in November of 1940, Bitter End, came as a result of a request from the American magazine to rework a story that had starred one of Wolf's other detectives, Tecumseh Fox, into a Nero Wolf story. Stout completed the task in 11 days, surprising the publishers, but Stout knew he would need the money as his income would drop as he focused on battling uh, Hitler. A former Navy yeoman and warrant officer, Stout was 54 and well past the age that he could physically fight, and perhaps he could relate Nero Wolf in one of the three short stories he wrote during this period. Wolf attempted to get back into shape and join the army, but found his talents uh, would best be used elsewhere. And such was the case with Rex Stout, who spent uh, the war years through writing and educational efforts, coming a radio personality in his efforts to fight fascism. Perhaps his uh, most notable effort prior to U.S. involvement was a radio series called Speaking of Liberty. In many ways, it was a successor to Americans Look Abroad, except it was more uh, patterned as an interview program. There were two separate series. The first aired from April to August, and the second aired from October to uh, December of 1941. And we're going to play two episodes. The first from November the 13th of 1941, and the second from December the 4th, 1941. The last uh, episode that Stout did prior to Pearl Harbor. So here now are the programs titled Outpost of Democracy and Women's Stake in Freedom. Speaking of liberty, the National Broadcasting Company takes pleasure in presenting another in this second series of programs under the auspices of the Council for Democracy. Once again, we have a period of free talk on the air, and once again, our host is Rex Stout, who most of you already know is the author of baffling mystery stories featuring the amazing performances of that master criminologist, Nero Wolfe. On these programs, you will get to know Rex Stout even better as an outspoken champion of our American democracy. Mr. Stout. Thank you, George Putnam. Good evening, friends of liberty. Here at the microphone with me is visible, startling evidence of the shrinkage of the globe we live on. It's a man. 
A man who in recent months, not years, months, has visited London, Cape Town, Cairo, Alexandria, the Sahara, with a special side trip to Hellfire Pass, Rangoon, Bangkok, Singapore, Manila, he sounds more like an atlas than a man. As foreign correspondent for Collier's Magazine, he has covered nearly every battlefront of the war. He's interviewed Tiano, Mussolini, General Wavell, General Auchinleck. He's written a book, soon to be published, called War Has Seven Faces. His name is Frank Gervasi. Thank you, Mr. Stout. I was beginning to feel extremely anonymous. I was saving the best of the last, Mr. Gervasi. The word for you is ubiquitous, not anonymous. But in our brief 15 minutes, I'm afraid we'll have to localize. Well, how about the Middle East? What are the German and Italian objectives there? Well, of course, the most obvious objective is oil. The Germans want the oil fields of Iraq and Arabia for two reasons. They need it themselves, and they want to take it away from the British. Without the oil of the Near East, the British would be really crippled. Well, couldn't they get all the oil they want from America and the Dutch East Indies? They could eventually, but it would take time and tankers, and there aren't enough tankers even now. Oil is one of the German objectives, Mr. Stout, and there are two others. They want the Nile Valley, which means big stores of cotton, wheat, and grain, and they want to open routes for the coming Battle of Asia. That's one of the biggest objectives of all. And you think the war is headed east instead of west? It certainly seems so. Mein Kampf is still Hitler's Bible. It explains, among other things, why he attacked Russia. He wanted the Russian resources, of course, but even more than that, he wanted to be able to use Russia as a great forward base for the advance on Asia. What about the attack on Britain? You don't really believe he's crossed that off his list. Nobody can say for sure, but I'll risk a guess. I believe that Hitler would like to see the island of Britain permanently under siege and slowly starving to death. Part of that is pure revenge, of course. Hitler has never forgotten or forgiven the British blockade of Germany during the last war. And if he can, he'll do the same thing to the British now. Yeah, if he can. But getting back to the Middle East, Mr. Gervasi, what do the British plan to do there? Just hold the fort? You might say the British plan is the German plan turned backwards, Mr. Stout. That is, they intend at all costs to keep the Nazis away from their oil supply, and then, if possible, to drive the Germans and Italians out of North Africa. If they succeed in doing that, they can use Libya as an advance base for a smashing attack on Italy. Success or failure, depending on the climate, the timing, what forces they can muster, what supplies they can get, what they... What make, uh, make that what supplies they can get from America. The forces, that is, the manpower, are about equal. And after all, the climate is no worse than Texas. I've been in Texas, too. American supplies and American ships are really the key to the military situation in the Middle East, Mr. Stout. You see, the greater part of the British output is kept at home in Britain, and why not? The British know very well that the war won't be lost in the Middle East at a single stroke. But the war can be lost, and lost suddenly and finally in Britain. A single bad blunder, sending away too many tanks and planes, for instance, could open the way for a quick German assault. That's why they're playing it very, very safe. Well, those American supplies you speak of, what about the rumors of their poor quality, faulty design? Don't you believe it, Mr. Stout. Not for a minute. I can assure you absolutely that our American tanks and planes are the best in the world. I know that sounds like a Yankee doodle, but it's true. They're trickling into the e Egypt and the Middle East right now, and just as soon as there are more of them, and the British learn how to use them, well, that may be the hour for the big push to drive the Nazis out of North Africa. All the British need is time, time and trained men and American supplies. What about that part of the Middle East where there are no American supplies and may never be any? What about Turkey? Turkey, that is another question. 
And it's particularly interesting because it's tied up with the question of the whole Muslim world. I sometimes wonder if people over here realize how large that world is. Do you? Well, Turkey, of course, Egypt, Arabia, North Africa. It's a much wider world than that, Mr. Stout. Say two-thirds of the whole continent of Africa. Arabia, Persia, Turkey, Afghanistan, part of India. North into European Russia, east into Turkestan, and right on to the edge of China. It's a world of primitive ideas and deep spiritual feeling. It's full of different races and tribes, all bound together by the faith of Muhammad. It's unstable, unpredictable, and watchful. I believe it was Lawrence who said that Arabs could be swung on an idea as on a cord, and it's still true. Are they on a cord now? Who's swinging it? The whole Arab world, or the Muslim world, is motivated by the ideas of freedom and independence. That's one of the good things the British have done there. After the last war, the war that smashed the Turkish Empire, the British set up little countries and kingdoms like Iraq and Iran and Saudi Arabia and Transjordania. So the leaven of those ideas is still moving all through the Middle East. They understand the issues at stake between fascism and democracy. But the Muslim world respects power and prestige, which derives from power. And so, as I say, it's watching to see who applies the most power at the point where the leading nation of the Muslim world meets the West. Which is Turkey. Right. Turkey is by all odds the most vital of all the Muslim countries. The Turk has a conception of nation and state that the Arab doesn't have. Politically, he's much more mature. But right now, Turkey is very much divided. More than anything, she wants to stay neutral. Well, suppose she can't, Mr. Gervasi. What then? What if Germany demands free passage to attack Russia from the south? As I say, Mr. Stout, Turkey is divided. On the surface, she is faithful to her alliance with Great Britain. But below the surface, many little signs point to a sympathy with the Axis. What signs? Can you specify? Very easily. The broadcasts of Radio Ankara for Western consumption are anti-Axis. But their Arabic broadcasts for home consumption follow the Berlin party line. A British newspaperman has a devil of a job getting a phone call through from Ankara to Istanbul. A representative of the DNB, the Nazi press agency, gets his right away. British ships going through the Bosporus are held up for several days with cargo checking. British ships are checked through in half an hour. Shall I go on? You made your point, Mr. Gervasi. And you think that when the pinch comes, Turkey will go pro-Nazi? I don't know, because there is a counterpoint. It may be absolutely nothing but legend and superstition, but there are many people in Turkey, mostly the common people, like the peasants and the private soldiers of the army, who cling to the will of Kemal Ataturk. His will? Do you mean his policy? No. The story is that when Turkey's strongman, Kemal Ataturk, lay dying in 1938, he wrote a codicil to his will, sort of a political testament to his country. He wrote, For as long as you can honorably do so, Keep Turkey out of war. But if you must go to war, don't fight on Germany's side. With Germany, you lose if you win. Ha! That's certainly putting it straight. Is it just a story, or did Ataturk really write that? No one knows. The common people believe it implicitly. I heard it first before Germany started into the Balkans. I heard it later in Damascus from a Turkish officer. And I heard it again in Cairo from a high-born Turkish woman who had just come from Ankara. Well, you say the common people believe it, Mr. Javazi. Does that mean that the politicians and the Turkish ruling classes do not? They're apt to shrug it off. You see, Mr. Stru uh, Mr. Stout, the, the story in Turkey is very much what it was in Greece and Yugoslavia. Many of the politicians in the upper classes, even the middle class, were appeasers. They thought that if they played the game with Hitler and angled for time, 
They could keep out of trouble and keep all the pleasant, comfortable things they were accustomed to. You know what happened in Yugoslavia, how the army and the people threw out the government at the last minute and insisted on fighting. But it isn't quite so well known that the situation was almost the same in Greece, right up to the moment of the Italian invasion. Certain Greek statesmen were playing the Axis game. If Italy hadn't forced the war and roused the common people, they might be playing it yet. Well, you think that after all, when the time of decision comes, Kimalata Turk's will may bring Turkey in on the side of the democracies. It's an even bet, Mr. Stout. The upper classes in Turkey are appeasers, want to try to do business with Hitler. Hitler's ambassador, Franz von Papen, has promised the Turks very large rewards after the war, if they do the right thing. According to von Papen... Hitler will give the Turks Armenia and the Russian province of Azerbaijan. The Turks would love to get Azerbaijan from Russia. 75% of the population is Turkish anyway. And the country is rich in naphtha, manganese, and oil. To say nothing of cotton and caviar. So some of the politicians favor the Axis. But the common people, the peasants, and the soldiers of the army, including the officers, know that they will lose their freedom if Germany wins. And they are willing to fight to defend their homes. Also, they remember the will of Kemal Ataturk. But can they pull it off? Will they be able to grab the decision from the appeasers? Possibly, Mr. Stout. They couldn't in Romania and Bulgaria. They did in Greece and Yugoslavia. With help in time, they may in Turkey. And that brings me to something that I want very much to say, and say as strongly as I can. All through the Middle East and Europe, the common people are willing to die for freedom. They are willing to die if necessary. They are more than willing to fight. And they must have help. Courage these days isn't enough. As Colonel Lawrence said, the Muslim world can be swung on an idea, and it respects power. It has the ideas of freedom and independence. It's waiting for practical help in the form of tanks and planes and guns. Particularly in Turkey, if the common people at the moment of decision see powerful British forces to the south, ready and able to bring them aid, they will fight against the Nazis. I hope they do. One more thing, Mr. Javazi. Do the people of the Muslim world really have a feeling for democracy, for what we mean by democracy? No, not as we know it, Mr. Stout. The Muslim world is politically immature. Except for Egypt and Turkey, where the spirit of nationalism is very strong, our notion of democracy is respected, but not completely understood. If it isn't understood, why is it respected? Because America has a tremendous influence and prestige all through the Middle East. It's partly due, I believe, to the work of American missionaries and doctors, and partly to the graduates of such famous American schools as Robert College in Istanbul and the American College in Beirut. But aren't the graduates of both those schools Christian? Mostly, and I know what you're getting at. How can Christians have much influence in Muslim communities? All I can tell you is that they do. They've learned American skills, for one thing, which gives them prestige, and they spread the story of American power and greatness. Even more important, they've learned that in one of the greatest countries of the world, millions of men of goodwill enjoy a way of life and an individual freedom of which the Muslim has only dreamed. So even if our own brand of democracy isn't fully understood in the Middle East, it's respected. The Muslim world is a world of restlessness and primitive moods and religious fervor. Now, wherever there is a dawning political consciousness, it looks towards the United States because we here in America have the only vital thing left to give the world. The spirit of freedom is strong in the Middle East and, underneath the surface, is still as vital as ever in the captive nations of the Mediterranean. Democracy and republican forms of government were born in the Mediterranean lands, and the common people have never forgotten. Even in Italy, 
they have not forgotten. Everywhere the common people look to America. Spiritual fervor can build a new world, and only America can supply both the spirit and the form. The binding cement may very well be a world ideal of individual freedom and a framework of democracy. May be and must be. Thank you, Mr. Gervasi. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today has been Frank Gervasi, foreign correspondent and author of the book soon to be published entitled War Has Seven Faces. I hope you read it. This is Rex Stout saying goodbye until next week. You have just heard the sixth of another series of programs entitled Speaking of Liberty, brought to you each week by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with the Council for Democracy, a national organization dedicated to the propagation of an American faith in democracy. Next week, Rex Stout will bring Commander Edward Ellsberg to the microphone. A copy of this afternoon's script will be mailed free of charge to anyone requesting it. Please address your letter or your card to the Council for Democracy, 285 Madison Avenue, New York City. The Council for Democracy, 285 Madison Avenue, New York City. Speaking of Liberty has been presented as a public service by NBC and the independent radio stations associated with the Red Network of the National Broadcasting Company. This afternoon's program has reached you from the RCA building Radio City in New York. Speaking of Liberty... In the public interest, the National Broadcasting Company has made its facilities available for another program in the second series under the auspices of the Council for Democracy. Once again, there is a period of free talk on the air, and once again, our host is Rex Stout, whom most of you already know as the author of baffling mystery stories and as brain parent of the distinguished criminologist Nero Wolfe. On these programs, you'll get to know Rex Stout even better as an outspoken champion of our American democracy, Mr. Stout. Thank you, Arnold Wilkes. Good evening, friends of liberty. Our guest today, Dorothy Canfield Fisher, is not only a mother of books, but also a godmother. She has written Hillsborough People, The Bent Twig, The Brimming Cup, Fables for Parents, and many others, and is a member of the Board of Judges of the Book of the Month Club. In case that sounds to you like a lazy sort of life, she is also a recognized authority on education and is exceedingly active in welfare and war relief groups. She's come down from Vermont today to answer some questions about women, their place in modern democracy, what the present national emergency means to them, its opportunities, its dangers. You do think it presents dangers, Mrs. Fisher? It certainly does, Mrs. Stout. And that confronted with danger, women do not merely scream and faint? I don't think they ever did, except for an audience. I'm reminded of a letter I found once in my Vermont attic, written by my grandmother to her brother in the year 1832, 109 years ago. She had been doing something spectacular and wanted to reassure him. I quote from it. Quite an unusual thing for a young lady to do, I know. But I assure you that no one can see, even from a distance. What has she been doing? Smuggling? When people finally found out, Mr. Stout, what she was doing, they were shocked. Doctors said it went counter to certain physiological peculiarities. They said that women who engaged in it would render themselves unfit for the sacred duties of maternity. They said it would ruin their health and actually imperil the future of the race. What is she doing? Quarrying granite? Swimming, Mr. Stout, just swimming. Now? Oh, yes. Of course, it was absurd. But listen, no more absurd than lots of ideas people still have about what women can or can't do. I'm not talking about Europe or China, but the United States of America. The only thing I think a woman can't... Well, you go on, Mrs. Fisher. Well, 
We all know what the Nazi ideal woman is. A human being non-existent except to bear boy babies to grow up to be soldiers. That's poisonous. But how about the ideal woman of the clever Americans who write our advertisements? She is non-existent except as a spender of money. The woman held up to praise in those persuasive advertisements is the one who buys the most furniture, household gadgets, cosmetics, hats, shoes, automobiles. She is constantly told that only by many purchases of this or that can she achieve social success. That's not only absurd, it's sort of poisonous, too. But I don't call that a complete picture of the modern American woman, do you? Good gracious, no. It's not a picture of what she is. But of what people with gadgets to sell would like to have her be. I call that idea just as ridiculous as our great-grandfather's notions about women's not swimming. It's preposterous to steer women away from productive work and useful service. Especially now when Uncle Sam needs his nieces as much as his nephews. I'll say he does. Our democracy sees hard times ahead. It's going to take everybody's shoulder to the wheel to get us through what's before us. It's not safe to keep anybody from developing the muscles in those needed shoulders, for it's going to take all of us to hold the fort. For instance, if, as the Nazis do, you shut Jews out from education and economic life, from hope, from the freedom to develop the best and most useful of their traits, you soon create a ghetto that's a plague spot, not just for them, for the whole nation, in the same way, if women are shut out by meaningless prejudice from full development of their powers, the whole nation will be that much the weaker. Then there's just plain self-preservation. Not enough of us have really taken in what the totalitarian system means for women, would mean for us here if we don't make a success of defending Americanism. A choice between soldier breeding? Not even a choice. The totalitarian state makes up everybody's mind for him. I've just been reading a startling book by an American teacher, Gregor Zimmer, called Education for Death. It describes the way German children are trained by the Nazis. Really, Mr. Stout, you'd get the shock of your life if you read that book. German women must raise at least four boy soldiers or face the disapproval of the party. And what that means is that you may be forcibly sent away from your home and made to work wherever the government decrees. Women's places in the home is Nazi doctrine? Yes, again. It's in Nazi Germany that women are forced at the point of the bayonet to leave their homes in order to work in factories. Not neglecting, meanwhile, their quota of four boy soldiers, they certainly want it both ways. You remember their ferocious demand for Lebensraum, room to live in. Is there anybody who doesn't remember that? slogan about their country being overpopulated. Yeah, so what do they do? Conquer other people's farms and cities for their surplus population and give bonuses for German babies and dump the national birth rate by 30% in seven years. At that rate, their Lebensraum will reach Indianapolis by, oh, eight, 1950-60. And their sons and daughters from early childhood belong absolutely to the state. The Nazi teachers and youth leaders demand practically all the time of the children and young people to make them fanatically fascist-minded, and to make sure they will grow up to be hardened servants and soldiers of the Nazi ideas. This means so much organized group life for youngsters that they're seldom at home with their mothers, as our American children are. And when they are at home, they are trained by the state.
state to act as spies on their parents and report to the police anything not wholly Hitler doctrine which may be said in the family. What you said a minute ago, yesterday Great Britain passed a law conscripting a lot of women. Yes, by democratic process. Unmarried women, strictly as a war measure. They're fighting for their lives. But what about American women, Mrs. Fisher? Free women. Specifically, what can they do to stay free or to help other women to get free? Probably do just as they have always done. Try to find in new conditions how to carry on their old work. You, I don't get it. Well, take almost any so-called modern occupation for women. If you look at it, you see that it's only a transposition of what women have always done. For example, school teaching. What is that for doing in classrooms? The same thing which in pre-industrial days, mothers, grandmothers, aunts, older sisters, were always doing for the children around them. And the girls in canning factories, the armies of women who fetch and carry and give personal services in shops and offices, who run looms in woolen and cotton mills, who use sewing machines in garment-making centers, who are nurses in hospitals, aren't they all doing in the only way the modern world permits just what women have always done, producing food, manufacturing clothing, taking care of the young and sick and old, serving those around them. Well, uh, that's an ingenious idea. Oh, don't be so cautious, Mr. Stout. You certainly wouldn't say that a farmer was no longer a producer of food because he reached his feet for the machine instead of the sickle, would you? No. Well, why is a woman doing new and modern work because she nurses the stick in a white uniform instead of being dressed in hooked skirts? And here's another idea. Did you ever think that women in the modern world, doing in the modern world only the work they have always done, also are as unanimously not doing work they never did in the home? That is, basing their lives on the profit motive. Yes, I know that a very few women have owned businesses and directed factories, but so few you can hardly find examples of it. Yet it takes no physical strength to be the president of a bank or a steamship line. It does take capital, and women have often inherited capital. But when they go to work outside the home, it's mostly in their old role of doing service, not in making a profit on commercial transactions. Well, then it isn't womanly to buy and sell at a profit? Now, now, Mr. South, that's just what I don't mean. There's not a bit of evidence either way on that point. It's just that the profit motive is wholly outside their old experience of work for their families. They're not at home in that element. In professions like nursing or teaching, they get to the top and become leaders, the smartest of them. But you don't often hear of a woman owning and running a steam laundry. It seems likely that before this war is ended, we'll hear of them doing a lot of things, though not for financial profit. In England, women have volunteered by thousands for all kinds of work. War and the threat of invasion have given British women a new freedom and a sense of sharing in their country's defense equally with the men. Yes, and the neurologists say that all English people, men too, have a new sense of sharing and being useful which gives them new courage and strength. Everybody needs that feeling. Modern women especially, constantly looking for new ways to carry on the age-old usefulness which in pre-industrial days made them indispensable to their husbands and families. If the modern woman is to find the eternally lasting satisfactions of life, she must learn how to transpose her old responsibilities into modern terms. For instance, modern women are still responsible 
for the sound education of their children as much as ever, although their children are taught in classrooms. The mothers are responsible as citizens for the quality of education given in the classroom. Which, in one way, makes their job harder instead of easier. Indeed it does. It's hard to step out from the family circle, so familiar to untold generations of our ancestresses, and find our way through the maze of modern life to those same old duties. Those modern institutions, schools, hospitals, libraries, and all the rest, they won't function by themselves if citizens, women too, don't work as hard to keep them efficient as we used to work individually to give our children what they need. A little boy breaks his leg. He's taken to a finely equipped modern hospital where he is given much better medical care than great-grandmother could have given her little boy. But the mother is still responsible for the right care of that broken leg, only in a new way. You mean it's the mother's responsibility to work with others to keep that hospital well-equipped and staffed? That's the idea. She has to do her share in seeing that all little boys get care to make sure that her little boy does. But Mrs. Fisher, what specific extra jobs for women do you suggest now? Well, there's the big job of finding decent living conditions for people working in defense areas. It's hard to believe some of the stories we hear about overcrowding. They say there are actually places where people are sleeping in shifts, three people using the same bed in eight-hour periods. And in Boomtown, housing is only one problem. Of course. When you jam human beings together in such crowds, you get problems everywhere. Where can the children of the defense workers go to school? And their getting a decent schooling is of vital importance for our nation. Where can the young folks get decent fun during their leisure hours? The government agencies are doing a good deal. But it takes real neighborliness to rise to such an emergency. Americans have always been fine at rising to meet emergencies like earthquakes or floods. Why do some women seem to resent those new workers who, to aid in our defense program, have been obliged to go into their placid little towns? Here is a big job for women in town after town all over the country. To make people feel at home. That's peculiarly something women are always trained to do. More power to you. Thank you very much, Mrs. Fisher. Time's up. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today has been Dorothy Canfield Fisher. This is Rex Stout saying goodbye until next week. You have just heard the ninth of another series of programs entitled Speaking of Liberty brought to you each week in the public interest by the National Broadcasting Company under the auspices of the Council for Democracy, a national organization dedicated to the propagation of an American faith in democracy. Next week, Rex Stout will bring Erskine Caldwell to the microphone. A copy of the script of this broadcast will be mailed free to anyone requesting it. Please address your letter or card to the Council for Democracy, 285 Madison Avenue, New York City. The Council invites you to listen in on a special program, Democracy at Work, on Saturday afternoon from 2 to 2.30 Eastern Standard Time over this network. Speaking of Liberty has been presented as a public service by NBC and the independent radio stations associated with the Red Network of the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome back. Well, as it happened, Turkey remained neutral throughout most of the war entering on the side of the Allies on February 23rd of 1945, only a few uh, short months before the defeat of Nazi Germany. 
Speaking of Liberty, would actually only have one post-Pearl Harbor episode. But Stout would continue his involvement in World War II itself, and will certainly uh, revisit some of his uh, work during the uh, U.S. involvement at a later point in the series. Uh, we will not have a program tomorrow because we're having a program on Saturday, our Pearl Harbor episode. So we won't be back on Thursday, but join us on Friday for the war, and then Saturday for a Pearl Harbor episode. If you would like to share your experience or that of a loved one during World War II, please email your stories to box13 at greatdetectives.net. We'll consider all stories to be shared on the air. We also welcome your suggestion as to future programs. This program is dedicated to those who fought and died in World War II and is presented as a service of the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio greatdetectives.net. The opening theme is The Heroic by Ken Curlin. KenCurlin.com